0: d 20 Radio. Your gamer's role.
1: www.j20radio.com. Roll for initiative.
0: Greetings out there, folks, and welcome to the Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number 13. I am your host, DM Vincent, along with DM Jason and DM Nick. So, guys, tell me, how was your week in gaming this week?
2: Tiring. <laughs> I just uh-huh. had my last uh, Hackmaster game last night, and mm-hmm. I'm beat. It was it was when we probably got done about 1.32 o'clock in the morning.
0: Wow, that sounds like a long game. Jason, are you still there?
3: Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a different week for me. Uh, I've been off uh, playing Cthulhu for a while. We took a little bit of a left turn somewhere near Albuquerque. So lucky. <laughs>
1: it's
3: it's really interesting. It's my first time playing Cthulhu, and it's it's a, a very different approach. i have been learning a lot of things from it. So wow. Uh, yes,
2: it's funny. We were just talking about that last night because I'm trying to get everybody in my group to try something different.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
2: I really love Call of Cthulhu. It's one of my favorite games to run or play. It's like the anti-D&D game because everything <laughs> you did in D&D, you don't do in Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> it takes it's a lot over. of
3: getting used to some of the rules. We, the cool thing is we've got uh, a great group of players that have really been getting into it. They all brought um, lists of 1920s street slang. Oh, wow. So- <laughs> All right, don't so don't was- you give me the high hat? <sighs> oh jeez, I think I've only just played- want Everybody to watch Miller's Crossing a few times. Miller's
0: Crossing, <laughs> nice. I think I've only ever played the D twenty version of that. I've never played the original Call of Duty. So, but anyway, on to our show tonight. We have a wonderful special guest hosting with us tonight, Mr. Jeff Grubb from TSR's past. Jeff, how you doing? We're doing pretty good.
4: And basically, I'm
0: listening to the fact you're playing Cthulhu. That's a, that's a
4: big game and very uh, popular in our neck of the woods as well.
0: Really? Excellent. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah. We have a uh, semi-regular group of, you know, former uh, and some current uh, Wizard of the Coast employees, TSR employees, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, basically we get together about well, once every couple weeks. Uh, they're right now going through uh, an Arkham uh, Valley um, Miskatonic Press's first release, uh, for, oh, nice. uh, again, and we, have, we rotate off on GMs. So we've been running bits and pieces for many years now. And I always say you, you scratch a designer, you find a cultist,
1: because the uh, <laughs>
4: yeah. because actually a lot of people who play design like Dungeons and Dragons enjoy Call of Cthulhu because it's a very different type of game. It's yeah. got a lot of the same component parts, but its mindset is uh, the anti D and D. You know, the, mm. the creatures are not bags of hit points that you can you know take down, and you know what they are. It's you know these creepy strange things that you know, will have this acidic effect on your sanity.
3: So. It's, it's a lot in, in the game we're playing right now because our group is mixed up between people who normally play 1st edition and 4th edition D&D. The 1st mm-hmm. edition players have been doing better with Cthulhu because their first instinct when faced with a monster is usually run away. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
4: the, uh, so are, are you playing an original adventure or one of the
3: or a module? Uh, we did. We went through one of the uh, ones that's in the the uh, sixth edition book. That's just in the back of that. And right now we're going through okay. uh, a, a, a scenario called War Buddy. Mm. Which
2: oh, I've heard uh, of that
3: one. Yeah, okay. yeah. I haven't
4: have not do not know that one, but yeah. it, this is, go ahead.
3: It's 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 getting a lot of taking some getting used to for us, though, because one of the ways that it's kind of anti-D&D is that it's not quite so clear when you've achieved your, your uh, purpose at the end of the adventure. Mm-hmm. So that's that was... the toughest uh, adjustment for us is trying – I mean, especially as, you know, right – we're doing the same thing. We're switching off uh, being the keeper, and it's my turn to be the keeper right now, hmm. and uh, – you know, just trying to make sure that I give these guys some kind of a goal that they're actually clearly going towards. Well, The, the goal is to survive.
0: Yeah, really.
4: <laughs> or go crazy in the most creative way possible.
2: Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. So, you know, we, we've had the people who have been dipping down into the low teens of insanity the Ooh. way the mechanic works, of course, the lower your sanity, the more likely you are going to be losing more sanity. Yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, it becomes you know basically it becomes the idea of how many adventures can you survive, which again is a very non D and D type of thinking. Uh, right. In that D and D is all about you know you build your character up and you're going to get more powerful here because of the sanity system. You become less powerful over time and more vulnerable.
2: Yeah, yeah the, the the ratio for PC death in Call of Cthulhu I think is considerably higher. Yeah, well, it's a hundred percent,
3: more or yeah. less. Yeah, <laughs> eventually it's a hundred percent.
4: All right. And the yeah. cool thing is, we're in a like a golden age right now of a lot of publishers are releasing uh, Call of Cthulhu material. Uh, super Genius Games, Miskatonic Press, a lot of small presses. Pelgrane Press is doing its own game system. Uh, an- another game system entirely called Trail of uh, Cthulhu. Yeah, and we, play, we played we played that a few weeks. We played that a few weeks ago because we know we're trying to experience, and that's one of those response games where it's trying to fix the pieces that we all feel is broken. That, that's that are, like that the. Uh, uh,
2: that's Indeed. like it's based yeah. off of a, a gumshoe right. uh, mm-hmm. uh, mechanic, I guess. So yeah. it's a different yes. game mechanic.
4: I think Ken Haidt was, uh, the original des- is the original designer and working on this one. And one of the components they have is that when, uh, when you get to the end of you know, where you've got all the clues and you've searched the haunted house and you, you've picked up everything you can, the GM holds up the little sign that says, Scene Completed. Oh. And, and scene and, and, and scene and we go on to the next part. the idea cut <laughs> nice it, one, one of the cool things about Cthulhu That's is cool. that I has like. a lot of, a lot of handouts a lot of you know like here 's a, here's a, uh, oh, yeah. a a ticket and here's a uh, here 's a newspaper article, and often what that creates is sort of this breadcrumbing so you know that you 're off the off the scent and you 're off yeah. the trail when the gm doesn 't give you any more handouts
3: for a while well you yeah have it the, gives the, you really Sorry, go
2: ahead. Well, no, you have the classic campaign, massive Narlotho tap, mm-hmm. which was like, which was like, the big pioneer in in the use of handouts for anything. Yes. I have that, and it's. I hope to run it again someday. It's a fantastic, just campaign going across the globe. Very pulpy, though.
3: The, the great cool thing, thing about sorry, I was going to say the great thing about the handouts is when you forget and leave them in your coat or your bag because my fiancé found a business card for the Christian funeral home the other day. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) What's this for? I said, well, it's for zombies. (laughs) Oh,
1: oh.
4: (laughs) well. I want to think the original Call of Cthulhu, the short story written by H.P. Lovecraft, is a handout adventure. In that the story is, is that the protagonist, the, the narrator doesn't do anything in the, uh, um, uh, over the course of the story, but he examines the box of his uncle's belongings and, you know, pulls out all the pieces and he gets all the handouts. And at the end, he realizes he too is doomed. And that's the story. And that is actually what Cthulhu is based off, the Call of Cthulhu game is based off of is that same sort of, uh, that's its map. Much like a lot of D and D adventures are based off the map, they're based off the dungeon, they're based off basically that's how the framework works within the game. Is you yeah. go into the first room and there's an orc and he has a pie, and you go into the second room and there's this, you know, the evil demon and all the rest. And so it's segmented that that's how they do control your pacing. In the Cthulhu, it's all about the handouts because it comes right. from a different baits.
2: You know, it's funny you mentioned kind of like almost dovetailing in the into D and D Mm-hmm. In my last campaign, I've, i I threw in some uh, Lovecraftian elements into my campaign.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I
2: don't know if you heard the previous episodes, by when I did the Salt March series of modules, yeah, I tweaked them out a little bit and added a few things because I uh, uh, primarily uh, deep ones. I added yes. those in as okay. uh, kind of kind of like allies to the
3: Sahuajin. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm,
2: I've been lucky enough Okay, to- I want
3: to stop you right there Because I was going nuts listening to that thing I always pronounce it, <laughs> I it was- So, Jeff I'm going, ups- I'm, I'm
4: going to upset both of you Sahaguin
1: oh. Okay oh. it,
4: it's, it's the way I have always pronounced it I'm it's, with not, you on it's, that. Say, it's not even to say That is correct Well, but- who came up with the name? Uh, then it first appeared what in one of the original small books. It was okay. in I want to say Blackmore. I could be wrong.
1: Okay, uh, it okay. might be
4: Eldritch Wizardry. Um, but it, it was you know it, the basically when it came about, I was um, I was playing as well. So well, did you hear? Him,
3: well, did you hear Dave Arneson pronounce it then?
4: No, I did
2: not. Ah,
3: that so would have to. been. <laughs> so it's, how
2: is it pronounced properly? Sahagwin.
4: It, it, Sahagwin is how I have pronounced it and how others I have worked with have pronounced okay. it. Okay. I'll go that, that's, not, that's not to say that is the correct or original pronunciation. So uh, we're not I'm,
2: sure if it's canon. <laughs> nah,
4: yeah. name, name checking back to Lovecraft again. Uh, back to Call of Cthulhu. We all yeah. say Cthulhu, but in one of his letters, he pronounces, oh, it's not meant to be pronounced. It sounds more like sneeze with a glossal stop, you know. <laughs> Cthulhu. Okay. You know? <laughs> okay. You know, let's go with Cthulhu just so we know what we're talking about. So, yeah. So, yeah,
1: it's oh, better oh, than oh, trying to oh, say, oh,
4: <laughs> you know. <laughs> exit <a> chittles. <laughs> the chittles I,
2: I, I was just going to mention that. those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always call them the evil manta rays. But- yep. <laughs> But, but I got- in my campaign, like I was talking about, I threw in deep ones because I was mm-hmm. lucky enough uh, a few years back to pick up the uh, copy of deities and demigods with the Cthulhu mythos and the Melnabonian mythos in it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, also, that one of the climaxes of the game where they <laughs> when they ran the deep ones are like, oh great, now what's next? Uh, yeah, they ran into a shoggoth. So yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty um, out in
1: that
4: respect. <laughs> in fact, I mean, like I said, a lot of our a lot of our uh, design crew over the years have been Cthulhu fans. Um, I was playing in uh, horror on the Orient Express that Zeb Cook was running. Oh wow! You oh, know, wow. and I ran a copy a uh, version of um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, and some of our you know the current uh, designers, uh, Bruce Cordell. Is you know he's brought a lot of Cthulhu madness into third and fourth edition, in um, the fact that the, the the realm of madness and a lot of you know a lot of the more tentacly bits are definitely uh, 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 Lovecraft inspired.
2: Now that's interesting because that almost harkens back to the original to the original D and D game where much of the elements seem more like. Uh, uh, like you know, uh, more related yeah. to Robert E. Howard's stuff, mm-hmm. and Robert E. Howard was a contemporary of Lovecraft. Right? They, you know, they corresponded and what have you. He was part of that circle, so in a way, yeah. that kind of all ties in together.
4: Mm. Before there was the internet, there was small press, and there was uh, uh, people writing. There were his correspondents. There was a time and, before the internet. Uh, Lovecraft. And um, Howard and Clark Ashton Smith, who's a favorite of mine, were all part of that you know era. And the, the weird tales that they told found their way into the uh, basis of the fantasy that was you know early D and D, where they were we were picking up everything that they could you know get their hands on. Here's some biblical stuff, and here's some mythology stuff, and here's some old you know pulp tale stuff, um, castle. Castle Amber. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One of the early basic the uh, I want to say it was
1: x yeah, basic. Yeah, I think uh, it, was, X2. I think it was
4: an early early expert. It's heavily or X3. heavily uh based on uh, on uh, uh, Clark Ashton Smith's uh, Avion stories. Yep, and, I have that. You know, i I, I've, I found the stories much much later. You know, I played the adventure and you know, oh, that's really cool. That's really you know different. And, new. and then I found his fiction many years afterwards. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm actually looking. I'm lucky enough to have my deities and demigods. I, I bought it when it first came out before they took the Cthulhu out of it, and mm-hmm. it's very beat up now. But yeah, it's got the it's got the. Uh, the great intro here about including Clark Ashton Smith, Frank Belknap Long, Robert yes. Bloch, Robert E. Howard, August Derleth. I mean, these books uh, really, besides just playing the game, these early TSR books set me on so many literary paths. You know, True. For, <laughs> as a preteen. <laughs>
4: Well, also as a, as a world builder, the uh, the whole Cthulhu mythos, that whole mm-hmm. shared universe that they that were was created through this correspondence and through the stories, in part comes about because you know they were writing stories for pulp and they didn't think it was going to have a long life, so they were you know borrowing things back and forth and you know using references that each other has each other writers have made in order to create the illusion of. Um, Reality within their stories. So if you know one, if one uh, story uh, by one author mentions Tisagua, and you know basically uh, Lovecraft might pick that up and then use that as a, as a throwaway line to basically mm-hmm. say, oh yes, he learned you know of the ancient dangers of Tisagwa. So
3: See, that's the reason. Um, I, in earlier shows, I think we've talked about Thieves' World because it's one mm-hmm. of my favorite my favorite settings of all time for exactly that reason. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and, um, yeah.
4: I actually, I've written some. Th- I've written some thieves, some stories for the new Thieves World for the for the yeah, revision they problem. did a oh. few a few uh, years ago. And talking with Lynn Abbey, she always said that you wrote your first Thieves World story for love, and your second mm-hmm. one for revenge.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Because the, you know, you, what you somebody had
3: somebody else did to your characters. Or exactly,
4: what? exactly. There were there were like these <laughs> these these wars going on, these little battles. <laughs> oh well, gosh. you've done this to my character. I'm going to do this to yours. <laughs> so, and since it was you know open season where your character was not protected, you weren't the only person who was going to write about it. That you got some very interesting stories out of it.
2: That reminds me of the thing that uh, what happened with in the Lovecraft circle of of. Boy, he, Clark Ashton Smith, he was Mm -hmm. made the evil sorcerer Clark Ashton.
1: Yes. Yes, and there was so, an
2: old
4: pharaoh, Lahuv craft or something. Yes.
2: You know? <laughs> See, some things never change. It mm-hmm. all goes through. It's like, yeah, everybody and, like this is everybody else.
4: <laughs> and uh, it, there's actually, and it's, it's, I think it's part of it's been part of gaming because a lot of people who you know play play role playing games, and even before play board games, you know, are open and they're looking for other types of uh, of fiction uh, in S- SBI. A uh, wargaming company did a uh, fantasy uh, game called Swords and Sorcery, in which they had a character named You Name It. I has read it, <laughs> based on the mad, the mad uh, creator of the Necronomicon. So, okay.
0: So, yeah. also, They
4: also had a Gygax Dragon Lord in the game. So.
0: Nice. <laughs> So, Jeff, speaking about Guy Gax and Gary and writing and history and past, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you uh, first started with TSR back in the long time ago days?
4: Well, I started playing way back in 75, first year of college. (laughs) I had played uh, war games uh, and I went to Purdue University Mm. and they had a war gaming club and there was a group of people in the corner and they had... Didn't have a board. They didn't have any miniatures. They were just, you know, rolling dice and yelling at each other. And I walked over <laughs> and asked what was going on. They gave me three six-sided dice and said, "Here, we need a cleric."
1: Oh, and no. that's
4: how I started. Playing. We need a cleric thing. Yes. Yeah. We 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 need somebody to play the class. Nobody wanted to play. Um, and that's where it started. And I, you know, took it back to Pittsburgh when I uh, when I you know on the break and so I had you know D and D I played with D and D crews and our group. Got involved with um, Gen con mm-hmm. and oh, okay. in part because you know, in part because uh, a friend, one of the members of our group 's family had a house on lake Geneva, and oh, we wow. 'd go up there stay a few days and then we 'd all go to the convention and so we got involved in the d and d open, which was run by Bob Blake right. and this was just before the RPG came about, um, and they would run a big four day adventure and at one point, a, uh, um, one of my friends basically said, wasn't impressed with the adventure that year. And he said, ah, we could do better than that. And he said it too close to Bob. Oh. And Bob wheeled <laughs> on his heel and said, congratulations, you're writing the uh, Open for next year. Oh, my and God. And uh, we wrote the Open. Um, it was myself, Jeff Liebman, Frank Dickus, and uh, Lenny Lakofka. Wow. Uh, He was going to do a couple couple in there as well. So I did not meet Lenny until at at, uh, at the convention itself. But, you know, we had corresponded long distance and we put together a story and we made it all fit. And on the strength of that, I was hired um, by uh, TSR. We delivered and we, like, delivered eight months Mm -hmm. early, play tested and everything because we were, you know, young and excited and all this stuff. And we, uh, um, uh, uh, got, um, uh, was hired by TSR, worked in the old Hotel Claire. This would be about 82 was when I joined up and my first mm-hmm. D&D project was Maze Master of the Riddling, Riddling, Riddling. Minotaur. No, Maze of oh. the Riddling Minotaur. We're talking about first product.
2: Oh, that's the... Yeah. Um, the Sorry, right, I, I
3: missed
4: it. What was it. Marker modules, yeah.
2: Yeah.
4: But yeah, the... Uh, um, Maze but of yeah. the
2: Riddling Minotaur, yes.
4: Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they gave me, and I, one of the first project, early projects I also did with with that one was Monster Manual two.
2: Okay, so that was along about the same time. Then you were doing both of them. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, uh, M two uh, uh, Riddling Minotaur was my first one, along okay. with um, uh, Burn Bush Wells, which was a Boot Hill module in ah, which I heard. had to in which. Alan Hammock had created a town, and Brian Bloom had created an, a random encounter table for outside towns, and I was supposed to put them together. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and so and I thought we did a good job. We got a Larry Elmore cover, and it really looked good, and it really came off well. But, and it was a Boot Hill module. So Which that's one sort was of like, it?
3: Because I've, I've never seen a, a, any Larry Elmore artwork in that setting, so i got to look this up.
4: Oh, you really should. It's a really good piece. Um, it's called uh, Burned Bushwells. Which was the name of Allenstown, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. it was um, BH five.
3: Okay, you know because I wanted to ask you about things like this. You know, when it comes to Boot Hill and Gamma World, because there was even in the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's a few things in there for uh, you know Bring converting over. You know, mm-hmm. when you felt like falling through a dimension door one day, did you guys do that very often? Yeah, did you do the cross planer thing?
4: In my campaign, we did, you know, uh, there was a brief period where everyone was armed with lightsabers, but we, don't, we, we speak not like that. Oh, boy. Um, and we did a lot of, you know, like little bits and pieces, then the anachronisms that would fall through. Sure. I had mm-hmm. one player who was slowly building a Volkswagen. And every- <laughs> Get a oh piece. God. God. <laughs> that 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 was his goal. Um, so we we had and, a
2: chariot. <laughs> never,
3: you know never. what you you know what you got to do then as the DM is give him the last piece and have it be from the wrong year. Exactly. Oh, oh, <laughs>
4: <laughs> but I never I never threw them into the old west. So okay.
2: Oh. Now I got a question on uh, when you were working on Monster Manual two how how you got involved with that and um, just putting that together.
4: Um, Monster Manual 2 was interesting just from the fact that we were in the new building by that time, and it was, we have a whole bunch of monsters here, put them together. And a lot of them, you know, I got these sheaves of paper, you know, of of submissions and stuff that, you know, uh, Gary had done, and it was just, you know, work your way through this. Um, In some cases, I I created a few monsters. Um, Uh The Daemons. some of yours. Okay, Mm -hmm. uh, Gary did the, uh, most of the daemons, uh, with the exception of the Arcana daemon, the Chirona daemon, and the Chirona daemon, which Mm -hmm. were mine. I think there was another one. Oh, there was a plague daemon in there too. And it was a case where we said, well, we really need some more daemons, and it, uh, what, what do we have that doesn't fit? What, what environmental niches aren't covered? And we didn't have a leader daemon. So Matt that's the arcana, the arcana daemon. This was before his time. And since it was that. Occupied, and supposedly they occupied Hades, so therefore, okay, do we have a some, a, a Styx devil? A devil for the river Styx. And that became the oh, Torona daemons. Right. The other one, and I, I will take the blame for this, is uh, a lot of the Modrons. Um, the, yes, I, I, I am the one to blame. Uh, because I'm not
2: uh, blaming you at all.
0: Yeah, right.
3: Uh, I, I always just never used, used them. This. They, they were, no, they were, seriously, I have to say I liked those a lot because I was a real sci-fi kid and they kind of spoke to that part for me.
4: They, had, they were your polyhedral dice. It was really easy getting yeah. miniatures for yeah. them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but... The, or the the early
4: modrons, the monodrones, the duodrones, etc. I had you know the full stat list in the and, and this is what they do and this is where they're from and they've got a uh, and this is what they look like and okay and the duodrone I got got a full stat list and a description and the third one I get most of the stats and by the time I get quadrone I get you get the name and mm-hmm. it sort of petered out so carrying it all through so the upper level really weird ones those mm-hmm. were mine. So. Well, you know, in, I got the impression
2: in- with those monsters, that, that, that the, the creatures, the the Modrons, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, they're in the plane of Nirvana, correct? If I remember <laughs> yes. that correctly. Mm-hmm. Now, Which became the Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the impression, and I was thinking before it, and I, I think I was correct thinking now, this is kind of a way also to fleshing out the rest of the planes. Because you have all the demons and the devils and yes. the demons and what have you. I'm sure there were players like what's going on in the non-evil planes of existence so and we had the devas the-
4: mm-hmm. and uh, solar. We, the solar the solar we had the planetars uh yep. we the, the, they're all you know quasi angelic in nature mm-hmm. but, um in My original campaign, I had all the godlings in the upper right hand corner. you know this is where you 'd have the powerful individuals mm-hmm. you know good and chaotic who are not so they the, 'd be the counterweight for the uh, the demons on the other side but right. one of the, I mean one of the reasons we have the planes is as a place where we get more where more monsters come from, as opposed sure. to you know we 're filling out the planes we, we have all this cool stuff and where do they come from and that I believe is where the great wheel you know gets it gets start. It's we can Mm -hmm. have, you know, demons and devils and a wide variety of creatures. And we saw that, you know, of course, because we're D and D is primarily good aligned, you know, you're a hero. Uh, people may play anti heroes or evil characters, but we are primarily going to beat up the bad guys. Right. Having a plethora of bad guys makes a lot of sense. So as, you know, much more so than having the planetars. The Archons. I Mm I think actually did I bring those in? That may have been my, Emmanuel the Plains creature for the first when it first appeared, as well. So, in the back of the uh, back of the book.
3: Well, one of the things that I always thought was really good about the, you know, the good-aligned monsters that showed up in the books is it gave us a lot of ideas. You know, when we were creating our own house-ruled things or. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, everybody that I knew enjoyed you know making up a class and those kind of things that you only played with your friends. Yeah, um, and you know, yeah. with, with the modrons, we we ended up in because uh, we were all big fans of uh, Madeline Langle, and so we ended up making up this one called the tessadron that was actually okay. a, a fourth dimensional modron that would change shape all the time because you were seeing different parts of it.
4: Oh okay, uh, wow! Sort of like like Flatland, yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like Flatland. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, looking at things like, you know, like planetars and solars and everything else, you know, helped a lot when we were trying to think about how we would create more things of our own. A know, lot of things-
2: kind of when you think about it, too, is, is when you
3: have all those other extraplanar
2: creatures, like the good aligned ones, mm-hmm. it gives you a better sense. It, it broadens the planes. It gives it a wider scope. It's not just demons and devils there. There's... There are other creatures out there, so it's like if you go to, you know, uh, when you go to Nirvana, it's not just, there's nothing there. You have something that you could build upon, like, you know, with all the uh, Modrons there, so it makes for a better, broader experience, I think.
4: Well and a lot of what we saw when I, when, we, when we I was playing the game, and when we were designing, we were giving examples. We were showing this is a way of doing it, sure. and yeah basically very well aware that you know the players and the GMs are going to take that and take all the, take all the chrome off and they 're going to change around stuff and <laughs> create, create a new right. but that 's part of the mm-hmm. process. This is just you know a nature of what I think makes d and d so uh, accessible for a lot of people is that uh, especially the old stuff is that you, people felt uh, permission, uh, in some cases the necessity of you know, uh, changing and altering and building their own systems.
3: Well, see, that's one of the things that I've always used as an example of why it's so fun to play first edition because I, I call it an open source gaming system, not in the sense just that you see what the rules are, but that you know, there's so much more explanation given in the things that are written so you understand where somebody was coming from. So oh, you can right. And
2: on, of, and on top you can, of that, it's it's yeah. still you can take bits and pieces if you want them and use them, or you can leave stuff out and the whole system yeah. still works.
0: The, the pluck and to play an system. Yeah, I usually call it the yeah. pluck and play system, mostly.
4: Yeah, people take the pieces that they like. I, I see that a lot of uh, RPG game design has been, uh, we mentioned this earlier with Cthulhu, uh, this response. Um, I like what you did with this, 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 and this for the game, but I think you're wrong. I'm bringing in a skill system, and we we add to the conversation. Mm-hmm. And basically, people, you know, people come up with one one dra- with one draft of it, and we had early on. We had Arduin, uh you know, as a response in many ways. Basically, we had uh, um, oh dear tunnels and trolls. It basically addressed a different type of type of gaming, and says we like you know basically it's it's very much that response. We always call these games ampers. Ampersands and alliteration because they all had (laughs) two letters with an and in the (laughs) middle between it. But they were in many ways a response to what they were seeing. D and D laid the groundwork, and then people would basically would come in and say, okay, I like this, this, and this, and we'll take those parts, and then I want to go in a different direction for it. You again look at Cthulhu itself; it's got basic stats. Much like the D and D system, and a lot of them, some of them are generated with D six. Some of them are generated with D two plus a number. Some of them are, are calculated out, and all of that comes out of people trying to, you know, make the system that uh, the D and D system work for them. Basically, taking right. the ideas that were first put forward there, and then uh, uh, distilling down to their new system.
3: Yeah. And one of the things by, by going into the Dungeon Master's Guide and seeing, you know, where Gary had written out, you know, this is the probability curves that, you know, I was using so I could make decisions based on that. Here's why I chose the magic system that I did based on, you know, Jack Vance for this reason. So then somebody could go back and say, you know what? I want to have a points based magic system, but I understand how he did it. So it gives me a starting point.
4: Well there's also was was a case where we came up and there was a lot of pushing and trying new things within the original system. Uh true name only exists within one spell. And yet if you if you assume that's a truth that everything has a true name, that changes the world outside. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So you know, so I, I see a lot of, you know, I always say that for the early system, especially for uh, when we went uh, AD&D first edition, there was very much a tendency of we need a mechanic to jump over a pit and we would take it and we would screw it on to the side. and <laughs> Now no, we need a, a mechanic for jumping over a flaming pit and we create a different uh, mechanic <laughs> to wow. do that. Well,
0: that was an interesting. Inside look. Uh, I'm actually going to wrap up this segment. And we're going to head into oh, yeah. Sage Advice because uh, we've had a long intro segment of about 31 minutes now looking at, so I guess the intro oh, should I be never over.
2: Oh, to ask about the Unearthed Arcana.
0: Oh too bad. Let's move on to Sage Advice,
1: guys. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sage Advice.
0: Alright, so we're now in the Sage Advice section. We just stepped through the door into the tunnel into the next segment as you guys just saw, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I like the decor. It's very nice. Jason designed it. You like it?
4: Really? Okay. okay. Jason, good job. I have to praise
0: you <laughs> it's on It's that.
3: crumbling a bit at the edges.
1: It a very <laughs> I, I like atmosphere. the mosaic myself. It's very nice. <laughs> <awesome. laughs>
0: so, Jason, why don't you tell people how can they contact us? So if they want to get their questions into us or comments.
3: Well, as everybody knows, we don't use any modern technology, so you no. can't use telephones, the internet, or anything <laughs> else. You're going to have to find a... Am I wrong? You're
0: very wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You can contact us. Uh, you can contact us either by uh, going to RFI Podcast.com, where you can uh, click on the call button and, you, and, we'll, and we'll actually give you a call that you can leave a message. You can send us an email to RFI Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I think we've got another phone number that you can actually call directly.
0: What is that? Uh, 206-something-something-something. I didn't write it down. (laughs)
3: 206-something-something-something. Yeah. Um, Or, of course, you can always send a Pony Express. Yeah, or you
0: can go on Facebook and join the RFI uh, podcast, uh, Facebook, or D20Radio.com. Let's not forget about those guys doing their 100th episode. Order 66 doing their 100th episode tonight.
2: Wow. Wow. We'll get there.
0: Yeah, we'll get there eventually. But uh we have some emails this week and uh we had a voicemail until the system ate it so uh you yeah. oh! know I'll just <laughs> pretend to be the voicemail and I'll read it, okay? So we have our first letter up from Chris L. He just said he wrote in, he loves our podcast, he has a group of his own and he's listened to a bunch of up. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. A bunch of podcasts and uh he has some ideas and he's from the Pittsburgh area and uh Oh. Yeah, he hometown. he uh
2: yeah. Well, as long as you're not a Steelers fan, you're good
0: with me. (laughs) Bad news. mm -hmm. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) He he was talking about maybe a mad Archmage dungeon as uh, polymorph pets, maybe, in a petting zoo. Remember we spoke about that a while back, about the evil creatures and the disenchanters and rust monsters together? Ah, yes, yes. Way back in the Mm -hmm. episode, whatever. Yeah, not too long ago. That you joined us for the first time, I think.
2: I believe so. I think that was my uh, first podcast as one of the guests, uh, one of the co-hosts. And then we so just, he's ta- yeah. talking
0: about what? Yeah. He, he's talking about how in, in maybe an evil petting zoo, you know, or
2: <laughs> evil petting zoo. I like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then we fed you and you stayed, Nick. So.
2: Oh well. Hey.
0: <laughs> I guess it was the beer we left out. Oh, never mind. I'm cheap. What can I say? Okay, and then DM Bill wrote in uh, again. uh, Thanks for writing in, Bill. And he uh, praised my comic book guy voice. Matter of effect, it's uh, excellent. And uh, he asked (laughs) us about, do any of us ever use custom races or classes, or do the official rules exist for edition to allow such a thing? I know I've never really used anything custom in my first edition games whatsoever. Um, Hmm. Nick, have you?
2: Well... um... I haven't created any like custom races or classes. I maybe toyed around with the idea, but I was always worried about am I making something that's gonna throw off game balance
3: from everything else?
0: Yeah, that is important.
3: Um, yeah. Game balance be damned. Game game balance be damned.
0: Well what have you done, Jason? <laughs>
3: Damning the balance well, I, of the this head. This, it's not a bad uh, segue from what we were talking about before, actually, because uh, mm-hmm. one of the races that I created was one called the Air Lancer, which uh, was created specifically around the, uh, uh, the Oasis of the White Palms. Am I getting mm-hmm. the name right? Yeah, Oasis yeah. of the White Palm, yeah. Yeah, based around that. And it was sort of a, um, the illusionist to the Paladin's magic user, if you will. It's a sort of uh, a Middle Eastern themed paladin on a Pegasus. Oh! So,
2: oh wow! Yeah. Cool. Interesting.
3: Yeah, so it, it can be fun. I mean, we, we never took it outside of our campaign because it's one of those things everybody in our group uh, understood what they were and they made a lot of sense. But I wouldn't ever take it to a you do know a you tournament th- or a convention.
0: Do you still have the it- information written down? Or
3: I do. I do. You,
0: you should post it on I the just, website.
2: Yeah, I I'm think actually the only
3: interested thing- in hearing from Jeff on this one. Oh, cool. yeah. Uh, we, uh, That's when right. I was
4: playing back in the you know, late '70s, we definitely you know created our own races, our own classes. Uh, uh, one friend's campaign, we had cat men. <laughs> and we basically you know did a whole lot of uh, uh, of cat jokes when they
3: were around, like like, but, uh, uh, like red dwarf. dwarf?
4: Hmm. Like before, red dwarf. This is before we saw Red Dwarf. This was huh? more inspired – oh, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it was more inspired by like the Jack Kirby comic books. Do you remember those? Oh, uh, Kamonte, yeah. Okay. The Last Boy on Earth, and there was the, the Empire of the Lion Men and the Empire of the Tiger Men, and they were fighting okay. against the Gorilla Men, and that was, that was a piece of it. But we also you know, picked up all sorts of stuff from um, Dragon Magazine. You know, the new Dragon Magazine would come out have Alchemist as an NPC class, and we first couple months we'd try them as as a player character class and see you know how they worked. And uh, and one of the actually one of the pieces that's left over there is uh, the gods for Dragonlance came out of my own personal campaign. We just. Mm -hmm. Oh, so wow. Up and moved oh, wow. And when I yeah, created those cool. gods, they, we created them with the idea of, well, we have a fighter god, and we have a magic user god, and we have a druid god, and we have well, basically set up from that utilitarian nature. And one of the gods was we were running alchemists when I created the gods. Yeah. So, Syrian, the flowing flame, was an alchemist <laughs> god. Then we stopped playing alchemists, and they, you know, um, the guys moved on to something else, but the god stayed. And then we ended up moving it over and becoming part of Dragonlance. So that's that's huh. the secret origin of Syrian. Wow. Came out of an article. It started all the way back with an article in Dragon magazine. So we we definitely wow. had no no fear about experimenting. And it, and if something didn't quite work out, say. Lightsabers with extensive use <laughs> of critical hit systems. Uh, we would say we, we are closing this door and we are never going back again. So we will not. <laughs> yeah, Ardolan took act. over from that area. Oh, <laughs> uh, and uh, Middle Earth role playing. Uh, they've got yeah. the, the most uh, enjoyable to read critical hit tables. But you know you don't want to suffer under them. You know, basically no. you accidentally disembowel yourself. Opponent loses three phases, laughing at you.
3: You know, it sounds like Hackmaster.
2: Yes. Well, yeah, that's how, how did, I. Yeah, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah,
0: no Hackmaster.
3: Jeff, how did how did you handle some of the? Uh, you know, you're talking about the different races, because uh, by the book, you know, first edition is so biased towards humans. Yes. Did, that, did, you let, did you let that get in your way? Did you, how did you deal with it?
4: Early on, it was not necessarily a problem. The fact that an elf uh, magic user couldn't get above 4th level, couldn't get above enchanter, wasn't a problem when people were dying at a regular level uh, method, about level 2. Yeah. Um, and nice. the split uh, experience basically gave them the ability to... Uh, they would fall behind you know, in levels, but they'd have more versatility. Um, so, literally, our sweet spot was up to about level ten. So there wasn't really a lot of uh, the, the, those. Those, and, and by that time, and again with Unearthed Arcana, they raised the rates. They raised the levels up as you go through that the highest level that a particular uh, uh, elf could be was at this level, unless you had an intelligence of seventeen. And when we go to a higher level, an intelligence of eighteen, going to a level higher. So that right. made life easier for uh, there. There was enough ways around it that uh, within the rules that allowed them to continue to grow. And so, literally, when you know, when your average level, average game player was, we you know we were six, seven. Um, it was not that that much of a uh, uh, um, hindrance on the, uh, on the on the on the on uh, the carry. In fact, uh, for my back in the, back in the seventies, one group I was playing I had too many elves. <laughs> they were the Elf Brigade. they wanted to stay together they wouldn 't insist on being in the same part of the party they wouldn 't split up you know wow. it, it just it, it just they were the elf Brigade because because they thought being an elf was the coolest thing because you could cast spells and you know, and fight so wow. <laughs> so they, they, that was very very different than the we look back now and say, "Oh my goodness, they, they shouldn 't go up in levels but it, basically by the time it got to that point where the average level, the rules themselves had changed
3: uh, so when C- you were creating for. When you were creating, for example, a cat, a cat, pe- cat people, mm-hmm. probably did you did you set a level limit on them, or did you say we well, they aren't going to live that long anyway?
4: It was in a DM, another DM's world, so I don't know if he had a level limit. I think he did, but um, I I couldn't tell you what it was because we didn't we didn't get to that point. Even though we were at a point where we had boats and we were sailing around, you know, uh, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were we were commanding our own uh, small armies at that point, uh, but uh, we we did not max out.
3: The, the last question I'd have on this topic, and then we'll let us move to the next one, is my original point of you know, forget about game balance. Do you agree with that or disagree with that?
4: <sighs> this is one where you're going to have to pick up the pause. Um, <laughs> Pause, pause. I think that I think the earlier systems were a lot more forgiving because there was so much they could go Astray. Um, there were a lot of powerful items floating around, so that a character that had a uh, moderate advantage uh, over the others. And by the time we got to Unearthed Arcana, I thought that, you know, actually the sub races had definitely advantages, uh, the uh, non human races had advantages over the humans, because right. I always tended to play dwarves, because they were the. Uh, um, um,
0: uh, I'm sorry, I have a phone call coming in. Can we,
3: can we sure, for we'll, a we'll, we'll, pause, and, we'll sure.
0: pause and return. Okay, we'll go on to our next email. Uh, Simon K wrote in with a bunch of other people. They wrote in this uh, coming to our call, but I'm going to read Simon K first because he uh, is the first person that wrote in. In uh, number 11, we asked about paladins and uh, who they can adventure with. Remember that, Nick?
2: Yes, when we were talking about the whole, pos- you know, the possibilities of like interrogations and such, yes.
0: Yeah. So, he and a bunch of other people uh, uh, came to the call and directed us to page 24 of the player's handbook and said they can associate with neutrals only on a single expedition basis. And only if that expedition furthers the cause of lawful good. Okay. So, I guess apparently (laughs) the paladin I was playing shouldn't have been associating with those people in that group for that long amount of time. Maybe if... uh, It would have been a good idea to maybe step out for a while, or, I don't know.
2: Well, you know, I mean, also, you know, a DM call, you know, whatever he s- sees fit, I mean.
0: Yeah, I, it's also just, you know, I also believe in the philosophy of, you know, it's, it's a game, who the hell cares, it's your game, here's the book, I don't care, throw it on the ground. Not to disrespect you guys <laughs> who wrote the book, Jeff, but. <laughs> it's okay. What do you think about the, that situation?
1: Uh, uh, d-
4: yeah the, the idea of you know we hit that that level as well because early on it wasn't uh, just a question of interrogation it was can we have the paladin in a party with a thief yeah because you know we took the paladin as being the you know ultimate lawful good you know, and the thief from the name being inherently and the alignments being neutral at best. We I think we opened the door to cha- a good chaotic after a while. There was some okay, I guess that's okay. <laughs> For as far as paladins, you know, on a one shot basis, uh, it, what it evolved to be is that paladins tended to end up toward the leadership end.
0: Yeah, yeah, of the uh, yeah. of
4: the party in the fact that since they can only since they this this, this particular line tended to drive it in that direction, in that since it's for the benefit of lawful good, well, if the paladin is you know the one who's going out and finding the jobs and they are all beneficial to you know the greater good of the community and they have a reward in the fact that the monsters are going to be dropping treasure, the thieves are pretty good with that you know they they, they yeah. were willing to go along with that. So that that, that we ended up with a lot of um, both campaigns, my home campaign and my college campaign. We had we had paladins who moved to a leadership position in part because if some if they you know they, they could not. By nature, uh, just well, we're going into the dungeon and kill some monsters. They they tended to infuse more of a sense of purpose into the campaign, and as a result, they rose to becoming the the people who tended to make the make the make those long term decisions.
2: And you know, Which, Jeff, I think you're I think you're you're hitting on a good point there. And I think I I've experienced the same thing too through my gaming experience that uh, that particular class and probably the cavalier. To yes. a certain degree, the mm-hmm. people, it, it seems that for some reason that class or classes, and I think even Rangers, too, Ranger, can, really. can fall into that as well. It seems like that those three classes,
1: yeah. the
2: players seem to, seem to make a more of a leadership role for themselves. Really? Right because really, of their alignment. You really think and, a ranger
0: be thrown in there too? I, I don't. Never really put a ranger in the leader category because usually we just use them as scouts most of the well, time.
2: Well, I've I've been in that. I played a ranger in my yeah. friend uh, Jeff's campaign, and uh, I w- I was playing a half elf uh, ranger cleric, and he was pretty much the leader of the party.
4: Right, and when you get just, to a certain level with the old school ranger, he was the party. We get to his, and get his fall fo- and all his followers would
2: show up. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they they outnumber the rest of the group. <laughs> and ironically enough, uh, the rest of the party was either neutral or evil aligned, and I was the only mm. good in the group. So I was wondering, maybe they wanted me in front of them so they could all stab me in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I made a second character in case they killed him. but, but I think you're right on that. It seems like paladins and Cavaliers, to a lesser degree, they tend to fall in that leadership category because of their motivations I
0: and really, how the people play them. I really like the Cavalier class because, simple fact, it's like a Paladin almost, but then you can always have that lawful evil Cavalier, so. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, <laughs> and, and again, I think it's a response to the fact of, you know, uh, the paladin himself carries a lot of baggage. Yeah. The cavalier has his own framework, but slight, again, slightly less so. So basically, he's a more accessible character as far as that's
0: concerned.
2: Did, he's the more of the archetypical knight.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I did hate the that, whole,
0: there's a dragon, he has to go charging into it thing, but you know. Yeah. Well, you know, hey. <laughs> Were you the one that wrote that into that class or? What, into he, the... Uh, the cavalier? Did, into the Cavalier. Did you work on that mostly, or was that? Yeah, one? I, I did work on
4: that. And if it's there, if it, it, uh, if I did not write it, I put I approved it.
0: Okay. <laughs> How's that, how's that for taking responsibility? <laughs>
1: okay.
0: Hey, I like that class. Mm-hmm. I do too. I just you know that's the one. The one complaint to have about oh, it's a dragon. I must charge into battle now. It's like oh great, there goes the cavalier. Yeah, this you saw in the unearthed Arcana classes a lot more societal yeah. type of influence
4: as well. That later on would get devolved into like the kits would have more of that. But mm-hmm. that like the barbarian and magic. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
4: yeah. It, it just was it was tough to have the barbarian just say, no, no, I don't want to roll on the magic. But if I get a roll, I'll roll and I for treasure and if it's magic, I will uh I will destroy it because it's, you know, I am a barbarian and that is bad. <laughs> <laughs> the barbarian, yes.
1: Uh, okay, and, and
0: um Jason, what do you uh what do you think about the uh, whole situation of the uh, paladin? I'm sorry, the uh, paladin. Yeah, pretty much in the lawful good.
3: <laughs> well, um, what's I don't know. What's the question? Uh,
0: were you alive or no? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, hopefully my 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 mic is working again. So it is. We had we had a little bit of a problem there. Um, I was I was just enjoying you know the conversation you guys were having on that and thinking about. I, I guess I'd never really thought of the classes in terms of who falls naturally into leadership roles or otherwise, and I was trying to imagine different classes in my mind. Being in a leadership role, for example, I could never imagine a magic user in a leadership role in a party. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, just just by their very nature. Um, but a barbarian—that's a pretty interesting one, especially if there is a magic user that uh, teams up with the party. At, you know, at, at some point, while the barbarian's actually being the leader. Yeah, that's scary.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like, yeah, you know, how all the people treated Aquaman in uh, the comic book. Why don't you just go talk to some fish? <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. And we've,
4: right. we've had groups where the wizard has been in charge, but it's a, it has a different vibe to it because we're never quite sure what the wizard's up to.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
4: know, it's it just like uh, the paladin also has that advantage of being a fair broker. You know, he 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 base, basically is going to you know find out what's going on and then share it with you. Whereas the wizard, he might leave some pieces out for as far as the art. And if is a
2: concerned. and if a thief's probably somehow getting in charge of the party, he's getting people killed. Yeah, yeah well, it, it's it's the running running gag that you don't let the thief
4: keep the keep the uh, uh, party treasury. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. We we haven't mentioned the cleric yet. In the in the old system the uh keeping the cleric alive was, you know, this was your your, your health line, so the idea of if he was going to leave he was gonna leave yeah, from the back of the pack
3: because
4: Yeah. <laughs> because they, no, 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 don't go in. <laughs>
3: Well, it's right. interesting because if I think about the different fantasy um, literature, and you know, which is a way that I usually think about how people are going to act in them, uh, I, I can think of almost nothing where a clerical type is the protagonist or the hero, um, and and even for for wizards, for magic users. In fantasy literature, there's always something just a little bit sinister and dark that seems to be at their heart. the the only ex- The only exception I can really think of is like um, uh, John Belairs, if, you know, with like the Face in the Frost. Hmm. His yeah. wizards were great; they were, you know, just like laughable, kind of fun old, <laughs> you know. And Vance's uh, wizards, especially, you know, the the high level oh. ones.
4: Where yeah. basically his stories were basically consisting of why you can't cast that spell that you want to cast that will solve. Jason
2: the loves Vance stuff. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: absolutely.
2: Jason, yeah. Jason loves
0: Vance. He's a Vance fanboy.
3: Yeah. Proud yeah, it's of good it. Stuff. it. It's <laughs> right. great stuff. I mean, and it's as far away from John Bellairs as I think you can possibly get. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I love them both. They're just these are great authors. Excellent,
4: but yeah, see the, the 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 mage, the wizard, tends to come with Merlin, Gandalf, uh, in the support group area. Mm-hmm. You know, they're basically the advisor. They're not the king themselves, and the king always comes from the you know from uh, the warriors. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. That, and I think that's one reason you're seeing the, seeing the you know the the the, uh, the sword wielders tend to you know become the leadership position because our archetypes are laid out like that.
1: Yeah,
3: can, any, exactly. can anybody can anybody think of a a fantasy literature example of a clerical type being the protagonist. Wasn't there a series, the cleric, cleric quintet? quintet? Yeah. 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 yeah,
4: Salvatore. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. That's come back a couple of times, but that's been that's been a clerical protagonist, but not necessarily uh, a you know not necessarily that leadership role.
1: Right.
0: So. All right, we have uh, one more one more letter here, and it's uh, from Sieg from the Dragon's Foot forums. Hello. Uh, yes. Hi, hi Mike. Hi, hey, Sig. Mike wrote in uh, and he uh, actually he answered our call about the frost golem because I think the last uh, golem, excuse me. We uh, had asked about if there was a frost golem, and we were both we were all kind of like, hmm. And he uh, sent it to me, so I posted it up on our site. If you want to go check it out. Or if yeah, I, I saw it, I that. Know. It's very cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. He also talked about uh, uh, the show and the uh, he actually sent a voicemail, which you know, like I said, the system ate. Uh, you know, you can blame it on me. Sorry. I asked him to do it again but he uh he didn't have time and you know, understand everybody's busy. So mm-hmm. maybe next time. But he uh, actually asked about the old bumpers that we did on the show that when I was editing the show we used and now we have new ones. That sounded like they could fit into any show. He said that he wants the old ones back. I said, Well, you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> well,
3: um I I I would kind of repeat that if anybody wants to, you know, join in and help out with producing, because there's so many different pieces to making this show that take time, I'd uh, love to, you know, have volunteers step up, definitely.
0: Please, we need your help and support. <laughs> so if you do want to become a producer of the show or an editor, you can contact us, staff at com and we'll talk about it. We'll see how it goes, and we'll maybe we'll give you a shot, do a segment or two and see how it happens, and we'll... Uh, We'll work from there. He also said he wants to hear more from me because uh, other people talk a little too much. Okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> I don't know who he's talking about. <laughs> As it's total silence right now. What? <laughs> yeah, right? Crickets <laughs> chirping. Crickets crick, crick. uh, So anyway, Nick, didn't you have something you wanted to discuss uh, today on today's show? Uh,
2: Well, let's see here. Oh, yes.
0: Um... <laughs> Something to do with another another podcast? Or?
2: Well, yeah. Oh, no, you was, mean – are you talking about PA? Yes, about Penny Arcade.
3: Oh, that's um, right. Okay, sorry. Yes, that thing. <laughs> um, hey, now, now, first of all, before we go into it, I just want to say right off the outset, I read the comic all the time. I follow the thing. I've never been to PAX. I think these guys are great. And they recently – and just to give a little setup because I know it sounds like – Nick's about to give the (laughs) hi-hat. Yeah, really. I'm going to let loose with both barrels here real quick. Uh uh, These guys, uh, sometime in the recent past, past year or two, uh, started playing Dungeons & Dragons, Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. you know, fourth edition Dungeons & Dragons. And, hey, God bless them. You know, anything that reminds people that there's real gaming that takes, you know, some work and imagination to get into, you know, wonderful. Uh, And so in a recent... Uh, posting article whatever you want to call it uh, I think it was Tycho it might have been uh, the other guy said that
0: it was Gabe
3: Gabe said that they had tried some OD&D Ooh. so now, keep in mind we're first edition we're not OD&D but whatever it's all I think it still pertains it
1: pertains, yeah, still and I was protectors. really impressed
3: to see that he went ahead and he came up with a way for their 4th edition players to be transported back in time, and as long as they went back several centuries. And I think, you know, by the way, I think they are playing in Forgotten Realms, so Jeff, you can jump in here. But um, okay. they were they were that- transported back in time, and not only were they transported back in time in the game world, but also in the rules. Mm-hmm. So, great idea, and I will step aside.
0: <laughs> and Nick, here is your box. Hold on.
2: That's me getting up on my soapbox.
1: Okay. Right.
2: Um, I read through the article. I I kept an open mind about it. And Gabe did use one of the, the old school, the OSR stuff that's been coming out recently. He used the swords and wizardry rule set. Yeah, right. To right. do this. He did. And I read through it. But... At the end of it all, I felt like Gabe totally missed the point about old school gaming. You think? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of <laughs> um, got that, too. Like, like, if I could use a quote here. Go ahead. Quote it. From it. Um,
0: we'll post up this link to this article on our website as well so people can read along.
2: The idea is to have a lot of fun. Without anyone getting hurt, okay. Or things like uh, all the twists of old school gaming, but minus the freedom and danger. Hmm. Um.
3: Things now, like that. Now you got to keep in mind. Now you got to keep in mind. Oh, hold on, hold guys. on here. No, no, hold Jason. On. Video game. Jason, he's
0: hold on. He's on the soapbox. Jason, step down. Step okay. down.
3: That's
2: the and that therein lies the problem. Now he, I don't think he understands that part of you know pen and paper pencil and paper role playing is there is freedom and danger and people do get hurt right your players the, the characters do die that's whole part of it and not, not in fourth you accept it and that's just part of the whole thing and See and like what he's saying here is the only way he can have fun is if it's like totally safe and there's no freedom and there's no danger. It's like he's saying it's like the antithesis of what we yeah, ever
4: I'm, Actually I'm reading over his uh, piece right now and yeah, it sounds like he's saying he's running OD- OD&D but it is you know but he's uh, making it more humane and we were joking earlier in this cast about, you know, basically we didn't worry about uh, level limits kicking in because no one was reach, reach, uh, reaching those levels. Right. Exactly. Uh, so the idea for his, his gaming group is – the and this is what you're quoting is like the letter he sent out to his players, reassuring them that he is not going to smash them dead uh, just because they're playing in an original D&D world.
0: Well, I always took the first edition. Is when you gained a level, that was something big. It wasn't like how it is today. Right. You gained mm-hmm. a level. It's so like, woohoo, let me go it's find like, my holy next. holy cow, I yeah. survived. Yeah, it's like yes. I survived another level. You know, I should be proud of myself. I just gained 10 billion experience points to get to the next level, and I should be rewarded with this and that, not just, okay, you gained 1,000 experience points. Oh, level 2, yay. So, and, I mean, and, and when and he used his.
2: 1,200 like, if you were a thief. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and when he used. Gabe used his example of, like, comparing what they're doing now and what was going on then between, then between like, when you go and watch, like, Civil War reenactors with a bunch of cantankerous old guys. I. I don't know if that's sarcasm or. If he's actually believes well, that, I
3: think I think that came out of a genuine but misguided, in my opinion, idea that somehow there's, there's been some yeah, right. sort of evolution, you know, positive evolution of the game and. You know, this is probably as good a point as any to have Jeff on because, you know, my my viewpoint is that, no, actually, there hasn't been a positive evolution of the game. That, you know, there was a place where fixing yeah. certain things was appropriate, and it's reached the point now where, essentially, it was either turn it into a video game or no one's going to play anymore. And I agree, and that's where the standpoint I'm coming from, too, Jason, on this.
2: Exactly. So, yeah, Jeff, you so got Jeff- some- well yeah Jeff has worked
1: so, on Jeff, his, what do
4: you think? Wait, see, I I've read this earlier as well and uh I I uh, earlier on I was talking about how design is conversation and how we have gotten to this point of you know the current fourth edition through the staff through the various points of well how do we make the how do we fix this game? You know, just starting from the original, you know, uh, three little books and you know, chainmail if you can get it, and you know, evolving through the hardbacks and second edition and third, etc. is always that ongoing uh, discussion of what do we like about the game, what don't we like about the game, how can we make that game more uh, accessible or easy or containable or uh, all the different. What you see is we apply different values to it as we move forward. I like the idea that he's. Sending him back to an original D and D universe, you know, and basically being able to compare and contrast it. Um Though it sounds like he's making, trying to make it, you know, uh, again more survivable. Because yes, uh, fourth edition is more survivable than original. So is second edition and, and, and third edition. And you know, and we have, you know, the game has grown. Uh, back in the original D and D, at tenth level, that we uh, uh, joked about, you know, you'd run into a guy with a motorcycle jacket in, in, in the game, and in the back, in silver, in platinum studs that would uh, uh, spell out tenth level lords, uh, because. <laughs> You know that that tenth level was just you know incredibly high level for for this group. So there is a evolution for the game. One thing, and I think it came out of this discussion, was talking with some with somebody else. The idea of doing as a uh, a celebration type of thing, doing a time spanned dungeon where you do the first uh, uh, over over the course of a convention where you do the first one in original D&D stats and you do the second one in first edition uh and uh, uh, first edition, and second edition, third edition, and fourth edition and you basically have it in the same dungeon evolving over time and you're fit fa- and you're basically facing the creatures as you move forward through the various editions and that would be you know that would be really interesting but it would be a challenge for the player
3: because yeah, it would be a challenge it would be. for the DM. Yeah. So is, yeah. This,
4: yeah, is this? Is this the uh, um, um, numbers go down? Is this the armor class goes down, or is this the armor class has a table, or is this the armor right. class as they go, or you know the, the, the or armor class is one of four armor classes, you know? You
3: and know, you know, I mean, I, I I gotta say, in with all of this, I don't. I don't want any of this to come across like I don't like what Wizards of the Coast is doing or anything like that because the truth mm-hmm. is if Wizards of the Coast wasn't out there pushing 4th edition the way they are, making it the way it was so that a new generation of gamers can relate at that point, that would be a lot less ecosystem for the rest of the game systems to you know, orbit around. Well, I, that, honestly, is, that is true. I have to think. No, I have to
4: think. I'm going to throw something out. that's very to that, that throw a, a hand grenade into the discussion here because this is something I've been thinking about. Is right, that I'll a lot of that, what? Uh, a lot of what we see for old school renaissance. A lot of you know, looking back at the uh, all these different um, swords and wizardry, being one of them. Um, Game systems that are trying to get back to the spirit and the heart of the original game. In that we're looking through lenses of all of these editions that we have played before, played since then. I'm sorry, and so you know our vision of uh, the golden age of the uh, Three Little Books is very different than what it was when we were there. Yeah, we didn't that's know we were true. In, We didn't realize we were in a golden age.
3: Yeah, that, <laughs> well, I know, that's, that's a good point. A you know what? I have That's a to good. Admit, point I was cause... cantankerous even then, though. I mean, when Unearthed Arcana, when Unearth Arcana, you know, was published, you mm-hmm. know, I was even cantankerous about that at the time. And you know, yeah. although I, I was sure to buy everything, and I still have my Dungeoneer Survival Guide and all that, you know, I mean, I, I I think that even at the time there was a little bit of a okay, this is a good improvement. This is maybe I'm not going to use that, but I don't know. I, I I think looking back through those lenses, I. Maybe this is an example of what you're saying that I am using the rose-colored mm-hmm. glasses. But you know, when I well, put I don't think the rose
4: colors, but I think they're affecting you know wh- how we judge you know what worked for the original game and what didn't. So oh. we've we've grown as well. I'm not going to say it's better or worse. I, I, yeah, I just,
2: and also you know, like you're, I think you're saying Jeff is all, you're looking back on it maybe with a, a little bit of nostalgia. You well, know? sure. That's that, well, that's my, what.
4: And that's that one of the cool
2: things about it, <laughs> right? And, and 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 that's true, and and I guess some people when they say that they think, well, it's actually you know distorting what your your view is now of what was actually going on then. Possibly for some, but I, I, at least for me, I don't think so. I I think I still have the same view of the game as I have now as I I did then. So. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it it might be be a, a lot added. more, and you probably may have, may have you know, shied away from some of the elements that were more destructive. Uh, right. to- Grimtooth's traps, great little <laughs> series of books of how yeah. to kill your characters totally dead. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Arduin Grimwar uh, was oh gosh, really Arduin, oh, my gosh, wonderful. Yeah. The 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 the, the spell that basically that turned you uh, totally and irrevocably inside out. How? How I, it was the and, and the parentheses and and irrevocably which was <laughs> I always thought was hilarious. That was, you know, we had killer dungeons in those days. And you go back to, you know, the type of things that Gary was writing in Dragon Magazine at that point, he both wanted to see advancement, but also he expressed grave concern about dungeons that were, you know, uh, too easy and too tough.
2: Yeah, the Monty Hall campaigns too. Monty Hall campaigns, yeah. the killer
4: dungeons. Those were the two st- Poles that most of us, you know, mm-hmm. were, were
2: between. All right. And funny you mention Grimtooth. So I fully embrace those now.
4: Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you see, I'm too, I'm too kind-hearted at this point. So. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So that was what that was. And uh, Nick, get off your soapbox now. Oh, okay, I'm off it now. Okay. So if they want, if they want to contact us at Penny Arcade to discuss this further, they can email us rfi staff at gmail dot com if they have any complaints about what we said. Or they just want to comment to us, or they really want to come on the show. Whatever. Let's I was be- just thinking that that would be an interesting discussion. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll see what they happens. From they went out there, with who
4: and I and I, I do want to point out one more thing for the penny arcade. We we're at their penny arcade expo is out here in Seattle. Oh, okay. and has had it has a very strong uh, board gaming and uh, role playing gaming component to it uh because I think in part because of the uh attention that uh tycho and Gabe bring to it uh this oh. is just the penny arcade is just like humongous out here and uh the the Expo is very good the the uh uh they raise a lot of money for child's play uh a charity to you know put uh, games into the hands of kids who need them and uh they've been you know just doing a fantastic job and I, I extend that also to um uh, what they do for uh, D&D as well they've got a series of po- their own podcasts on like the wizard site
0: yeah
4: where uh with uh, Will Wheaton oh yeah and oh, uh, yeah.
1: They,
4: uh, and the, the moderator is Chris Perkins who is one of my regular who I play games with every Thursday Wow, uh, he's from Wizards of the Coast and he's one of the designers well
0: Will there. Wheaton if you want to come on the podcast uh no <laughs>
1: Okay. <laughs> anyway,
0: uh, that'll Thank wrap that up. Let's head into our feature segment of tonight.
1: Feature. Feature.
0: Jason. What?
3: What is our feature <laughs> segment of tonight? Creature or PC death. So our feature tonight is... That, is, is that
0: politically correct death or...
3: Yeah. So politically correct death. Oh, okay. How does a how does a personal computer die? How and how does it come? back? Um, well, you smash so, it on the ground
0: uh, when it statics up on you. What's that? You you smash it on the ground when the microphone statics up on you.
3: Oh, okay. I didn't know if that was me staticking up right now or not. No, no, no. So so yeah. So we're gonna talk about um, player character death, and uh, you know in with specifically first edition exactly you know where death happens how it comes back and kind of how you work that into the game in a game where death is not necessarily final how does that affect uh, you know your gameplay and your storylines
0: hmm complete utter silence
3: <laughs> great well, so I'm moving on to, to the, the th- next feature no.
2: well um all right you know I'll I'll jump into this. Okay. Uh, I'll start it so off. Let's
3: let's start with the basic mechanics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just That's to... good. That's good.
0: All right. Where can we find the basic mechanics?
3: Uh, it's probably a book or something. Yeah, I don't know. DM I don't know what it's called.
0: Anyway, zero hit points. What happens then?
2: Well, if I right. remember correctly, <laughs> yeah, zero hit points, you, you fall unconscious. Okay. If I remember correctly. I believe
0: and, um, I believe the book does say that anything below 0 you're considered uh death or dying right. dying anything below 0
3: that. dying dying. dying
0: and then uh negative 10 would be considered death.
3: Right. Right. I mean our our game we play uh, that you're continuing to lose a hit point. Um I think it's every round. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as you 're continuing to die until you unless you can be stabilized and then you know, brought back up above hit points and that 's in in our campaign a very major uh, occur, uh, uh, event because if you die you 're going to have to uh, or even if you drop below hit points and come back up you 're going to have to spend a lot of time regaining your strength your constitution is knocked down to you know practically nothing during that time of recuperation et cetera
2: now. Yeah. In uh, DMG, now this is on page 82 of it, uh, and I'll uh, kind of read out of here. Go ahead. Because this, this is what I cover. And, and again, page 82. When a creature is bought, brought to zero hit points, optionally as low as minus three hit points, mm-hmm. if from the same blow, which is brought to a total zero, it is unconscious. In each of the next succeeding rounds, one additional Negative point will be lost until negative 10 and reached, and the creature dies. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, such loss and death would cause from bleeding, shock convulsions, what have you. Um, it ceases immediately on or any round a friendly creature administers aid to the unconscious one. Aid consists of binding wounds, respiration, uh, You know, getting a healing potion, Right. Now, it does say any character brought to zero or fewer hit points and then revived will remain in a coma for one to six turns. So
0: oh, also, Max.
2: right, so there's going to be a time when you're from that zero between minus 10 maybe, however you play it, And if you're somehow brought back up to zero or a little bit higher, you're going to be in a coma mm-hmm. for at least 10 minutes. Yeah, I had to... And
1: you
0: can't
2: do anything, really. You no, just no. pretty much sit there and recover.
0: I had to alter a lot of these rules with my group uh, since we were speaking about the new generation of players because a couple of the players in the group are uh, MMO players. So the thought of death and having to, have to actually wait for your hit points to come back is like a new concept to these people. Yeah. So I had to change it around so it was, for my group, that negative 10 was death and then it was the roll of system shock to see mm-hmm. if they would actually die or not or stabilize. And then it was Jason you spoke about a lot in the past about how the players would go to town and have to heal up for weeks as the book says to heal. Yeah. Well, I'd have to quicken this pace up by saying they would rest for a couple of hours. And things Well, like-
3: the way that we've just handled it is that um I try to be a little bit more generous as a DM with uh things like healing potions and scrolls being found in the in right. the dungeons.
0: Yeah, I had to do it as in they rested overnight otherwise they'd be yeah. sitting there and they don't want to play. You know. Especially well, if you have the a reason-
2: group that's lacking a cleric, you're going to have to do those sorts of things. Yeah, we're sure. going to have to. The- well, you know,
3: I mean I found that the clerics aren't really the medics anyways because the cleric can't carry, you know, can't memorize enough or pray for enough spells to really take care of a whole party anyhow. Right. Um, and, and the other thing for me, and again, this is my personal approach to the game, right. is that one of my favorite things about AD&D is that it can be a little bit of a simulation in a sense. Right. You know, I tend to make a lot of my decisions as, you know, as a DM. This is why I said before that I don't really care about game balance because the real world isn't balanced. So I tend to make my it's decisions not. more along the lines of how would it actually work You know, given – a fantasy world that existed. And so, you know, the healing sort of thing, I think it kind of would ruin some of that uh, verite, rather than realism, I'll just say (laughs) verite, if suddenly, you know, the next day you're all better.
0: Yeah, I know what you're saying, but, you know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do to keep the fun rolling along in the game, so.
2: I guess it just depends on the group. I like, I think I'm with Jason on this. I I tend to play a little more... Uh, realistic when it comes to, you know, yeah,
0: you probably play more. I guess when
2: guy. you get around the area of of player character death, you know, and the whole thing surrounding, you know, what happens when I get down to zero hit points or or below, you know, how are we going to treat this? And I I tend to be a little more, I guess, a little more by the book and maybe a little bit more. Uh, realistic in that nature, it's going to take time for someone to recover. But there are, like, yeah, you know, like we all know, there are magical means to maybe get around those sorts of sorts of things too. So mm-hmm. I do take that so into consideration as well. Our, what do you do uh,
4: The thing, the thing is going back to my original campaign. Right. We would literally they would dungeon once a week within game time. And because they would get banged up and come out and they would want to be able to, you know, heal up. And we had the once a week dungeon. So we would run through several weeks in a single gaming session as they would go down, get banged up, come back up, heal up, go back down. And during mm-hmm. the week, there might be some changes to the dungeon, that sort of thing, from the, the, what they've done previously. But they became that, you know, that one-week limit was sort of like, uh, and this was for original, was sort of sacrosanct as far as, you know, ke- keeping them under under control. But also, the other thing that this needs is the it created the need of the high-level cleric in your hometown in order to handle the raises. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Have
4: you guys had uh, yeah. ha- had to deal with this problem? Well raised raised dead,
0: yeah. We're <laughs> just getting mm-hmm. on to that it was the next bulletin point there about how do they yeah. come back? What do you use? Yeah. So go on, Jeff. Go well, ahead.
3: Well I have to conf- I have to confess oh. that in our own games a lot of uh uh the, the 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 issue was sort of skirted by and now his nephew arrives and inherits all his stuff. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, the, the, oh, the there.
0: <laughs> didn't mm-hmm. I speak about this yeah. the son of uh, revenge of and Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I confess. Uh oh bad, bad, bad. Now so-
2: I've had the issue of like Ray's deck come up in uh, my previous campaign and it was it was the Saltmarsh campaign. Mm-hmm. There was a character. He was uh, he was playing a dwarf, and uh, you know he he just did the wrong thing. He just waded into a mass of zombies and skeletons and got hacked to pieces, and he died. Aww. And uh, he was a key fighter in the group. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily mm-hmm. too bright, obviously, but no. You know they brought him. He back already to said sol- he was a fighter. Well, hey, fighters hey. could be smart. <laughs> but you know I instead of instead of having them take the character back to salt marsh, and just saying, okay, here's how much it costs for do a Raise Dead spell, boom, you're done, I tried to make it a more of a role playing experience. That's always fun. To where I, they had to approach the patriarch of that particular church where the, uh, the, the dwarves are in the town, and they had to do. You know, it was, it was a bit of a quid pro quo thing. Right. You know, if we do this, what are you going to do for such and such God? And um, he did the whole ceremony and everything. And uh, when he came back, uh, he was he was evil. But he actually changed alignment to instead of being lawful eatable, he changed to lawful neutral because in because of his uh resurrection or uh, being raised dead and became uh, a follower of that god. Hmm. So that came a whole like role playing experience around the whole raised dead thing.
0: Okay. Interesting. So. And so let's move on to some house rules. Now, uh, the only house rule, like I said, like I explained before, was a negative ten, the system shock for hit points that I use. Nick, what house rules have you put into for hit points and dying and PC death? Well, um, some of the house rules that I've
2: incorporated, and these might seem kind of, kind of harsh, but I think it's I think it's realistic. If uh, and I borrow from you know other systems in this regard, right. is um, and I, when we played first edition AD&D, I'll incorporate some things from, from like Hackmaster. And one of the things I like is if you take more than fifty percent of your hit points in one segment, in one, then you have to make a syst- not a system yeah. shock roll, but make a save versus death.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Or
2: fall unconscious. I think that was into- a, I
0: think that was a third yeah. edition role Actually, they did that system shop. Uh, Save versus Fortitude was that the whole rule for yeah. the third edition? Yeah, I I it's kind of incorporated thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you make, take more than half of your hit points and damage from in in that segment from either one or multiple combatants, I said you can make a save versus death, and if you fail, you take the difference between the target number and what you fail by, and that's how many uh, rounds you're unconscious. Wow. So hmm. that's one of the things I've incorporated. So it makes uh, combat. Much more, uh, much more interesting. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's pretty cool. And players
4: yeah. t- tend to want to wield uh two hundred broadswords,
2: and or or use missile weapons
3: more often.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, so Nick,
3: left. in your in your campaign, Nick, does that apply to the monsters too? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah,
2: and uh, what I would do is, yeah, they would if a mo- Yeah, it goes both ways.
3: Yeah, it's not. Well, just this report- is this where I'd like to get Jeff. I'd like to get your your perspective on this because it goes to the whole issue of what it really means to get, you know, take hit point damage.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, because when I think about you know taking hit point damage, I look at it from that perspective of you're not actually, you know, you can't literally take more stab wounds to the gut just because you went up a level. It's more about how you manage. Right.
4: It's the whole idea of, of you know the physicality of what what the hit point is, and you know it comes out of comes out of the uh, 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 miniatures gaming. It comes out of this idea of you know basically you're decimating you know removing one out of ten of a, a particular figure. It's counting right. down in that fashion. So basically you know if, when you compare that to real life, no, you're not you're being beaten up and scarred. So it comes off your uh, your luck, your desire to fight. Um, I've always used it as the the latter, where it's the idea again, um, uh, combat is this uh, is you're not trying to kill him as much as you're conf- you're trying to convince him to not fight back anymore
1: mm-hmm.
4: to right. defeat to defeat them you know basically and so it's a conversation where where you're basically saying and stay down number of times <laughs> uh, the um so you know, as opposed to you have the big bundle of hit points that just represents your inherent toughness. But by the same and but the toughness is a component of that, and we've seen right. it in a number of the different incarnations of D and D over the years. The fighters have more hit points because they are supposed to be able to stand up to being beaten up better than the wizards.
2: So really, you know, like hit points are is like a combination of different factors, not just physical toughness, but right. there are other things involved with the hit point idea the concept
3: yeah so yeah. Then, so, nick, that, so nick to your your idea of have of the save i think if i was doing a similar house rule i don't but this is kind of a neat idea to say if you take half of your hit points and damage maybe it's more of a a save to see if you're going to just run and just give up
4: mm-hmm.
2: well but i mean for player yeah characters, that's one that way you can work. do it sorry Oh, true no you're right go ahead no, I, yeah. I mean that's one way you can do it, but
0: <laughs> I didn't mean
4: to talk over. But it's it, it, no, okay. it, but, but for player characters that creates the whole you know levels that gets into morale, and we've been fooled with some morale systems over the years, and they've never really worked because it takes control out of the players' hands. And the players like the idea of being in there in control. They like to be able to right. you know that my character will do this, and if he chooses to run, it's because he's made that decision as opposed to that he's failed a morale check. And that's a very big difference between the original uh, miniature games, in which you're controlling an army of characters. So, if your uh, cavalry, you know, flees off the field, you feel badly, but you don't, right. you know, take it personally. Whereas the person that represents you fleeing the combat at a critical moment—that's, you know, that's a much more difficult thing to uh, um, take uh, take uh, responsibility for. A fear, a fear spell, a confusion spell. Those, you know, players. Just don't care for those because they're you know, to, to have those thrown at them because they because um, uh, it takes that level of control out of their hands. But the players like the idea they will fight to the last breath because they are heroes,
2: right? Mm-hmm. And, and that for, mechanic I use, mm-hmm. like I was saying, Jay. Obviously, that won't work for certain things like you know constructs and undead. I mean, they'll just keep on fighting. So yeah,
3: it's mm-hmm. only for like living creatures. All
0: right.
2: It's it's just—it's a good
3: thing
0: to remember. Go ahead, Jason.
3: No, no, no. I was just saying it's a good thing to remember because, um, you know, if if you do play other systems where hit points become more of a physicality kind of thing, for example, um, I haven't recently, but I used to play Top Secret, and if any of you guys are you know familiar with the Top Secret system, where you're literally keeping track of exactly which part of the body just got damaged and by how much, it's almost like Battle Tech.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, you're right, actually.
3: You know, it's really important to think about what do these things actually mean when you're making those decisions as the DM. All right, well, let's hear
0: how you do it, staff at gmail.com, and that'll bring us into a, another segment. So,
3: see you there.
1: Creature, 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 dear,
0: So we're stepping into the Creature Feature Theater for tonight, one of our last segments of tonight. So uh, in the interest of time, we don't want people to sit around for two hours listening to our now. Nah, we of course we do, right? Sure. We could <laughs> stay and talk for hours on end, but then Jason would be mad because it would be such a large file for him to edit, and he'd pull his hair out. And and then he'd kill me. Yes, he would put me at <laughs> Why just you? Put me at negative
2: <sighs> five hit points.
0: Yeah, ha ha. Negative ten, and you'd have to roll a system shock. Ha ha. Yes. So we have a lich. What do you do?
3: Uh, so we you got a lich it. and a demi lich, and the demi lich uh, was Jeff, killed. Is the demi lich is is that yours?
4: No, the demi lich showed up first in S one, yep, uh, Tomb of Horses. horse. Asarak.
3: Oh, and an old Asurak.
4: And when I was doing Monster Manual 2, it drove me crazy, of course, because the name Demi-Lich is half a Lich. Yes. Demi is half. It, it, it's not a full Lich. So you'd think that a demi would be less powerful right. than a full Lich, and you would be wrong. Right. wrong. Oh,
3: <laughs> which is your very first paragraph here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Do you do you have the uh, the listing in front of you, are you remembering the first paragraph that you wrote in here? Oh dear, because it actually says it starts out with "demi lich" is a misleading term, in yes. that one might assume the "demi" <laughs> refers to status. Right. However, it refers to the state of the lich.
4: I mean, going back to the original, uh, you know, use of the word "lich," you know, like it originally was "corpse." Right. And the liches again. We're getting back to Clark Ashton Smith here because
3: he Ashton used Ashton the phrase. Makes sense. I don't know the I don't know the origins of the word.
4: The idea of um uh, it, it was used as an undead brought back for a purpose, uh or an undead spellcaster. Uh I think the story of like Empire of the Necromancers, right. and it was thrown around like a a term equivalent of zombie. The liches basically stir from their tombs and everything. Um but the, a lot of the weird tale writers, uh, Clark and Smith, uh, Robert Howard, uh, Garner Fox, uh, all did uh, this type of you know magical eldritch und- spellcaster who you know was living beyond his years by the by the power of his own magic. And these were this was uh, this was the lich that of came into uh, the D anD D universe.
2: Yeah, and, and the, the demi lich. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead,
4: Jeff. Yeah. Well, the Demilich came about 4s S1, and I was still a fan play. I was still playing then, as opposed to you know designing. So its origins are you know other than the fact that it was a perfect end monster um, was uh, you know I do not know what went into you know creating that the the Demilich. Yeah,
2: that the Demilich in itself, I kind of look at it's well. If not the demi lich, the lich is probably the one of the most perfect protagonists or antagonists you can antagonists. have. Oh yeah, antagonists that you can have for a campaign. I mean, just ultimate evil all around. You know, and using the lich as an antagonist, I it's 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 the quintessential evil overlord kind of character yeah. uh NPC, and uh you know i have unbe- unbeknownst to my players in my current campaign Ooh. the antagon one of the anta- uh, antagonists is a lich is a lich so Ooh, nice <laughs> and well,
1: that-
2: they're probably going to find out uh, in in a hard way and ironically enough uh I I think my next Blackstone's Vault is I'm doing a review of, Tomb of Horrors, so you hear my my um, what I thought of the whole thing. So. That's
0: awesome! I want to hear that one. Um, yeah. One of the bulletin points I had put on for this was: Can you base a campaign around a lich? Of course you can. It's a perfect oh, example yeah. of the big bad <laughs> guy at the end. I noticed that. The reason why I was picking this monster and writing the notes, Nick, in case you were wondering what I was thinking other than what's for dinner tonight and what, <laughs> what the next comic book would be, Bill, uh, was um, <laughs> why in the 4th edition or 3rd edition was a lich not a big deal anymore. I always throw this out there. Why aren't these things big deals anymore? Like, when we played 1st edition back in the day... It was like oh a lich oh my god what are we gonna do now it's just like oh a lich I'll just attack well it. yeah
2: it's like because hey you look on the cleric chart yeah. turning undead it's at the top
0: <laughs> yeah so I mean, so Jeff as someone who's written for both first and now fourth yeah what can you tell us about the something about the evolution of the lich and how the players see him now
4: well it's interesting because the lich is still a marquee character. Yeah, uh, I, I think that, you know, they, they did the return to the tomb of horrors mm-hmm. in the forgotten realms. We have various liches, you know, rolling around as being, you know, powerful uh, figures who have, you know, the fact they have a phylactery gives them this uh, um, comeback. Factor that you can yes. defeat him, and then you, as the DM, can bring him back when you see see fit. But I'm looking at the original entry for the Lich, and you know it, it has you know like uh, these amazing abilities of uh, having the equivalent of plus one plate and plus one shield or armor class yeah. zero, and yeah. its dice are eight sided. And that's something we forget from the from the from the past is the idea that you know we've we've upgunned the monsters across the board and the players as we keep evolving the game uh, that uh, the uh, the lich is, I still think, a very potent foe, but they've also we've also, it's also a much more crowded field now. There are a lot more creatures out there. I think the Lich is, you know, very comfortable as uh, a bad guy. The Order of the Stick comic strip uses that as a primary bad guy as well. And the the fact that it's got that, it's living in the uncanny valley. It was alive, but now is dead. It's powered by hate and magic. It's a very poetic uh, monster that you can uh, you can basically uh, do a lot with, and you can make it personal in a way that you can't make it with a lot of other uh, more bestial monsters, abominations, and like. You just you know can't get that sort of mano a mano type of fight uh, at the end where he's you know uh, manipulating stuff and throwing things hey, at you. He's a good bottom of the dungeon
2: module. Do you know um, Rich Burlew from Order of the Stick at all? You... Uh,
4: no, we I we haven't met so not that I know okay. of. So. Okay, I'm, a, of I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I I uh, I I've got it. You know, linked off my web uh, web and everyth- uh, web page and everything. Because oh, um, oh yeah, and, we all
2: do here. I think yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah. Enjoy the I enjoy the you know the comments on all the all the various versions of D and D going forward.
2: So you know. <laughs> You're, you were mentoring about the phylactery, uh, yeah, with the with the lich, and I guess with the demi lich you still have a phylactery. Um, when I was doing research on this a little bit more, I immediately remembered an article from Dragon Magazine. Okay, uh, and it was your it was your buddy Jeff Leonard, Kafka, who wrote yeah an article called Blueprint for a Lich. Yes. And I have the issue of the Best of Dragon Volume 2 that's in it. And I, and I read through it, and I got it in front of me here. And it's, it's uh, a great like two-page article, maybe a page and a half, of what, it, what you need for someone to become a lich. And it's, it's just chock full oh, of wonderful yeah. information how that all that. comes
0: about. That was a great article. I remember that now. what you're speaking. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: it's wonderful. And there's a lot that uh, a magic user or a dual class cleric magic user has to go through to even become one. And there's a lot of uh, pitfalls along the way that he can run into. Well, like, like uh, I guess in the preparation of becoming a lich, if during that time that you're getting everything together if the character dies and come back he has to start the whole process all over again yeah <laughs> um, that's just one for that's one example I found in here. what's the uh, oh, yeah. oh
4: mm-hmm. go ahead Jeff I'm sorry Go ahead. One of the things is that uh, you know it, we talk about the traditional, the uh, AD and D first edition lich as being you know, at least 18th level magic users. So they're yeah. you know at the top end throwing all the spells to start with. Yeah, and then they in right. addition they've got the uh, they've got the increased armor because of course the 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 um uh downside of any uh, spellcaster is lousy armor lousy hit hit dice. Yeah. Here we have the good armor, here we have the good hit, yeah. hit die. It's like this reward situation combining the the um toughest parts of the fighter and the uh wizard together. And of I think that's one they stood up. Yeah,
2: you know? and it probably even despite the alignment of the character, probably had some people playing magic users going
0: Hmm. Yeah. Really.
2: High level mage. Well, it's neutral bracket evil. Yeah, (laughs) and virtually immortal. Yeah. Mm. I might just go down that
0: road. All right. So. Yeah. Everyone really considered it, but let's talk about the demi lich. What was the um? Or the demi lich? What was the thought process behind that when you were designing that, Jeff?
4: Uh, Basically, for. Basically for the Demi-Lich was taking the uh, um, um, uh, main character of Tomb of Horrors uh, and bringing him across into uh, a more broad-based level. In fact, I, when we did this book, there was some question about whether we should incru- include the Demi-Lich and because he's such a cool monster at the end of S1. Do we want to really let him loose uh, and, uh, as a spoiler? Where people can yeah. encounter the Demi-Lich before they hit it in the, uh, in, in the uh, um, uh, adventure itself.
2: Oh, okay. I see and, where and, you're uh, going.
4: Yeah. Part, and part of it – ha- we, we should have set up spoilers at the start. Part of the thing for Tomb of Horrors is you're not sure you're going after a Demi-Lich to start with.
2: Yeah, you don't even know what you're going up against for the most part. There's there's hand. a lot of
4: misdirection in that module. There's a lot yes. of you know, uh, uh, it, it, it's the old, it's the first and greatest of the killer dungeons, and yep. part of it is you know it plays off again and again the the uh, sphere annihilation, the secret doors where secret doors shouldn't be there, and then at the end we have the demi lich there. Yeah, and that's I a, put uh, my
2: copy under my pillow at night to get inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so, why I'm such know, an evil GM. <laughs> Tomb of Horrors is like my one of my favorite modules of all time. Yeah. So the question is just how it expands
4: out into the greater, um, you know, greater play. You know, what more opportunities of what people are going to do to it. But its basics is just there when it was in S one.
3: Yeah. How much was uh, needed to be. Oh, no pun intended. Fleshed out. Um, <laughs> you know, from- I'm,
4: not,
1: I'm not... I'd have
4: to look at the uh, the original at this point, but I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, I I'm, re- I'm I'm really specifically looking yeah. at one part in here, and that's about, uh, you know, how to harm the skull. And one of the things is a fighter or ranger with a Vorpal blade or a paladin with a Vorpal weapon. Um, do you think that might have been already there in Tomb of Horrors? I don't know. And the, and the I'm gonna, reason I'm, I'm going like, into that is we brought up the Vorpal blade as one of our yeah. uh, things a couple of episodes back, and I've always been very interested in how the Vorpal blade ended up becoming something that was decapitating. Because, you know, Vorpal you know was just a word in a Lewis book. Go it goes go.
4: snickersnack. Yeah. <laughs> snickersnack. Obviously,
3: it has I love that.
2: snickers.
4: Oh, yeah, man. next. But, uh, Sorry. <laughs> I actually have to go back and look at look at S one because the idea that you must have a uh, a particular type of weapon to go oh, up I against got right this. You got it. You got it. Is 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 the Vorpal blade in, in S one? Um, at the, at the, the, the end, the, underneath the right up fort.
2: Only a fighter with a Vorpal blade, a ranger with a sword of sharpness plus five, or Vorpal weapon, or a paladin with the yeah. like. Or even that's a plus okay. four weapon can inflict damage upon the skull. Well,
1: there you go. It's already there.
2: Unquote. <laughs> now,
4: if I'm wrong, are there any vorpal weapons available in the Tomb of Horrors? <laughs> don't even think there are. No. That, 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 that's a very very you know, old school sort of thing. And you need just need to defeat this thing, something that you don't have when you walk in the door.
3: It reminds me a lot of, um, I don't know if anybody here was ever a fan of the Infocom uh, text adventure games. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I was because
4: that, only because that's what the only thing that was available for a while.
3: But they were great. I mean, I I, I honestly I have two Apple Twos in my office right now. I have a Two Plus and a Two E. The Two Plus is just for looks. The Two E is the powerful one. That's the one I use. Oh, okay. but I actually am. I, I go back and I play Infocom games on that original Apple II still because they're that good. And one of the things in an Infocom game that's a hallmark of the way they were written is if you fail to do something right very early on, you could get all the way to the end of the adventure and discover Mm -hmm. you're missing that one item, and you just forget about it. You've got to start all over. Hey, Jeff,
2: I I quickly glanced through the whole module. The closest thing that would damage it, if he didn't bring it, is in the actual crypt. There's a plus four sword of defending. Okay. That would damage the skull. But other than that, that's it. If you bring anything that's plus four or better, or these other weapons you're out of luck,
4: <laughs> all right, game over, man game
3: over yeah good quote and by the way, just on a side note, if anybody um is interested, all those infocom games can be played online still so oh. you know you oh, can worth. you can find them, and uh, really, for everything I say against computer gaming i I take it all back when it comes to well written text adventures
2: oh and before I forget um that article, that blueprint for a lich. The original article was June 1979. That was issue number 26 of Dragon, or you can find it in the Best of Dragon Volume Two. Excellent. So if you want to incorporate something like that in your campaign, you know, it's and it's also just a great read just to see how, you know, what it takes to be a lich.
0: Yeah, it's a great article. I I, I remember reading that. Like you, as soon as you brought that up, I was like, oh, I remember reading that as a kid. You're yeah. Like, I want to be a lich. <laughs>
3: Yeah. You know, and, and as Jeff was saying, uh, "Order of the Stick." You know, your Zycon—is it Zycon? I forget his name. Yeah. Uh, even though I read this like religiously, like, I read it like religiously, and I can't get names right. But uh, with so many things, Rich Burlew's writing is great inspiration for players. I think as much as for DMs, because oh, yeah. of the way that he really examines the motivations behind things, and looking at the motivations and the reality behind the lich that's at the center of that can be pretty instructive.
0: So the lich, what do you do? How do you use it? Email us, rfistaff at gmail.com. So I think that's going to wrap the show up this week, guys.
3: Okay, I guess so. Yeah, a <laughs> couple of end notes. Um, I do want to uh, let everybody know that on the RFIPodcast.com website, we do have a new weekly feature called Plus Two to Save. Yes. And uh, we've had two articles written so far. They've been really good. One of them, uh, the most recent, is all about how to uh, write an adventure, You know, how, what yeah. goes into it. And everybody, I'd love to have more people go and give that a read because I found that to be... Incredibly useful, uh, very well written stuff. So, and yeah, I
2: love that we're getting people contributing now. The yeah. More and more people are
3: coming in. It's wonderful to see that. I believe we're going to be getting our first uh, comic as as well, aren't we,
0: Vince? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, um, Heather, who's writing the Roll for Initiative web comic, who's been doing it for about a little over a year, year and a half. Has uh, written based on pretty much her group and playing in the group. It's basically her group around the table. And then she'll jump into the game itself and do some jokes. And kinda, it's kind of cute. Uh, it's a little anime sto- uh, uh, artistic work. I don't know if you guys had a chance to read most of it or not. Yeah, I looked at it. I thought it was pretty cool. It's very anime-based. I, I kind of like it. So. Yeah, I did too. She said she recently Sorry. had posted up a new one, so we should be seeing it in the next couple of days. Yeah, I nice. think I
3: think the new one's up right now and uh you know just total coincidence that we're both called Roll for initiative. But yeah. A nice bit of serendipity as it, well. Yeah.
2: I kind of serendipity. Just, um, nice to say that word.
3: There is one last thing though that I want to uh while we have Jeff on, I think this is an opportunity for our podcast to contribute to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I wanted to ask about because there's a very big citation needed in the wikipedia entry for um Toral. and okay. the the line is in 1987 abir was added as a prefix so that the world's name was placed at the beginning of an alphabetical encyclopedia citation needed jeff is it true this is true
0: there we go so there you this have it true. folks uh <laughs> Jason? It, uh,
4: it, it, there's, there's a little bit more story there. Um, yeah, yeah Ed, please. Originally, Ed originally had a name for the realms, for the setting. He had a name for the continent it was on, Faerun, but he did not have a name for the planet. And again, I mentioned how we uh, liberated the gods of my campaign in ter- and sent them over to Dragonlance. We took the name of my campaign, Turil, and we made that the name of a planet that uh, Faerun is on. And when we were doing the original layout, and I was I wanted the first entry to just happen to be the first uh, um, uh, to be at the at the front of the book, so so we get that you know out of the way, and that's how it became Abir Turil. Interestingly enough, in four, the fourth edition version, they just they they retconned the idea of Abir was a different world entirely that now has merged back with Turil. So they basically that allowed them to redraw a lot of maps. Huh.
0: So, yeah, Jason, you So, there's our
3: very meta moment where (laughs) possibly the first time that Wikipedia has had a citation put in retroactively through a podcast. Thank you. Definitely (laughs) interesting. (laughs) And uh, hopefully, one of our listeners is a Wikipedia editor and will jump on it uh, as soon as they hear the show. They
0: tend to lean toward print, though, so that's. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some some audio segments listed as uh, citations, so. We shall see. Well, well, then
3: we will just transcribe this.
0: Well, as we take our stroll down Grub Street with Jeff tonight, Jeff, you want to give us a little plug to your blog and maybe how people can contact you, what you're working on? Uh, I can be contacted through my blog.
4: Uh, it's a personal blog called Grub Street. It's GrubStreet.blogspot.com, mm-hmm. and is you know sometimes there's stuff about gaming. Sometimes there's stuff about collectible quarters. Sometimes there's stuff about local politics. It's a very much a personal blog, but people are more than welcome to uh, stop by, and I've got a link to uh, get in touch with me uh, there. Um, what my day job is, I'm working for ArenaNet on a um, MMO called Guild Wars 2, yeah. which will have mm-hmm. its first novel out at the end of July oh, wow. by myself and Matt Forbeck, uh, wow. which is called Ghosts of Ascalon. It's a fantasy adventure novel, and we're really excited about it. About it. it basically takes place in the space between uh, the original Guild Wars, which uh, came out a while back, and the, and the new game. Uh,
1: oh, in,
4: wow. in addition, I've done things like uh, uh have an essay coming up in the Family Games, The 100 Best, edited by Jim Louder. And I serve as a uh, general helper and content editor for Kobold Quarterly, which has declared itself the Switzerland of the edition wars. <laughs> nice. Because it basically goes for 3rd uh, 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 edition, 4th edition, Pathfinder, and whatever else. People will contribute to it. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's an excellent little magazine that I'd recommend.
0: Okay. So that is going to wrap our show up, as I said before. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. Thank that. you. It's been a pleasure. We're glad to have you on the show. I'm just going to sign off. saying This is DM Vincent saying keep it original and keep it old school.
3: Thanks for joining us, Jeff. <laughs> and uh, this is DM Jason waving goodbye from a small white house in a field with a boarded-up front door. That's my Infocom reference for everyone. Roll for initiative.